Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 60, Join the Club, in which we talk about chemical societies. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. One important facet of doing chemistry, and all science, by the way, is being able to explain what you've discovered. If you cannot communicate your work to others in your field, you have not succeeded in part of your scientific task. Observations, experiments, and hypothetical models all need to be publicly examined and critiqued. Maybe you forgot to account for a temperature or humidity problem in your laboratory. Maybe there was a contaminant in your reactants. Whatever the experiment, you need to get the research out there so other chemists can review your work and decide if your results are justified. To this day, Scientists argue over results and interpretations, and occasionally papers get retracted. If you never communicate your results, how can science advance? If you cannot convince others that your work is valid, how can you call it science? So how do you get your results out there? There are two ways. Publication of your full experimental method and results in a chemical journal and presentation of your full method and results at a symposium or conference. We may tackle the question of chemical journals in another episode, but in this episode I want to look at the conference, meeting, and society method. Scientific societies are a product of the Renaissance. The first clearly scientific organization was founded in 1603 in Rome and was called the Accademia dei Lincei. Italian for Academy of the Lynx-like, because the lynx allegedly has sharp vision in the way that scientists want to have. Among its members was the physicist Galileo. The goal was to promote the advancement of the scientific method, especially observation of real life, and the group lasted till 1653. Soon thereafter, two brothers in the Medici family founded the Accademia del Cimento, meaning Academy of Experiment, a small group who worked together to examine physical phenomena like electricity, gases, and pendulums through 1667. These led to probably the most important scientific societies in the world. First was the Académie des Sciences, founded in 1660 in Paris, which was a prestigious organization by the 1700s, and the home of science in France. A couple of years later, in 1662, the Royal Society was founded by charter from King Charles II in London, after some years of meeting informally in Oxford and London. This organization was proud to be free from government interference. The Royal Society included papers by Isaac Newton, Benjamin Franklin, but also a myriad of other lesser-known writers and even anecdotal observations, though the organization gradually focused down on serious work. 
The points of these organizations were the following: Firstly, groups of scientists liked to congregate and share their general enthusiasm for science. Secondly, these organizations fostered the spread of scientific knowledge, making an international community. Thirdly, scientists found a network of similar individuals who could discuss with them difficult research and perhaps offer guidance. Fourthly, societies offered prizes for interesting and novel discoveries. Prizes obviously earned honor and pride, very human feelings, to which scientists aren't immune. As scientific knowledge became vaster and more specialized in the Enlightenment, scientists became more specialized in their research. So, the general field of natural philosophy in the Renaissance was already divided into physics, chemistry, biology, and geology by the 18th century. This meant that specific fields began to generate like-minded physicists, chemists, biologists, and geologists, all wanting to discuss their research and generally pal around with those in their specific areas. And thus began the modern chemical societies. Chemistry, though, is peculiar among the sciences as being a bifurcated field. Is it theoretical, as in how and why do reactions occur? Which allies itself with physics, or is it practical? As in, what is the best way to produce medicines, dyes, alloys, and bleaches? This slowed chemistry's respectability factor down in higher education, and brought about a social divide between the upper class in the late 18th century, who were largely theoretically bent, the gentleman chemist, if you like. And the mercantile chemists and druggists who made dyes, bleaches, and medical remedies. In fact, it was only by 1841 in Britain that the practical chemists divided themselves into the apothecaries, who are still called chemists in Britain, and the other chemists who made chemicals. The whole chemical field then was lagging behind other sciences in finding associative homes for its practitioners. Surprisingly, the first specifically chemical society was not in England or France or even Europe. It coalesced in the United States in Philadelphia in 1792, founded by James Woodhouse and called the Chemical Society of Philadelphia. It lasted till about 1809. It seems that those members were not only interested in chemistry itself, but if you note the date. Particularly inclined towards Lavoisier's new chemistry, including oxygen as the means for combustion, records indicate that the organization met weekly, and one of its missions was to collect and analyze ores and minerals. People collected various rocks of interest and sent them to an appointed committee within the society, which analyzed and published the results at no expense to the collector. The idea was to be simultaneously patriotic to the new country, the USA, and to inform the public about the vast natural wealth likely available. One of its corresponding members was Scotswoman Elizabeth Fulham, whom we have discussed, and who investigated photochemistry and catalysis at that time. 
In the following year, the most important mineral for the security of the new nation was given special attention to the society. Nitre, or potassium nitrate, one of the ingredients for making gunpowder. A kind of meta-event for this podcast was held at the Society in 1798 when young Thomas P. Smith gave a speech with the title A Sketch of the Revolutions in Chemistry, which for our purposes was a history of chemistry probably related to Lavoisier's chemical revolution and resulted in his speech published as the first booklet on the history of chemistry printed in the United States. There is, however, another contender for the first chemical society. William Ramsey, of noble gas discovery fame, also discovered a note written by the famed 18th century Scottish chemist and lecturer Joseph Black. The note, dated 1785, is merely called List of the Members of the Chemical Society, with 59 people. Research showed that 53 of them were in Black's classes at Edinburgh University between 1783 and 1787. One of the members listed was Benjamin Rush, the first full-time professor of chemistry in the United States, and he was also one of Black's students. You can see what kind of influence a highly regarded professor can have on future practitioners in a field. Another early contender might be a branch of the Lunar Society, of which Benjamin Franklin and Joseph Priestley were members, plus the porcelain manufacturer Josiah Wedgwood. The Lunar Society was a general intellectual organization devoted to advancing science and technology. Members of the group called themselves lunatics. The branch we speak of was called the Chemical Society also during the 1780s, and met on Paternoster Row in London. Contemporaneous to this was a short-term chemical society in Philadelphia run by a physician named John Pennington. The group lasted for only one or two years, and almost all records have vanished, hence little is known about it. Like the Philadelphia-based chemical society, other local mineral assay organizations began to spring up. An American Mineralogical Society was begun in 1798 in New York to study minerals and fossils not just in the USA, but worldwide. A British Mineralogical Society was formed in 1800 and did similar free analysis of interesting rocks and minerals. A Western Museum Society began in 1818 in Cincinnati, Ohio to do likewise. Another early semi-formal chemical organization was the Chemistry Club, which lasted from 1806 to 1828. Members included Humphrey Davy, and chemists who occasionally visited included John Dalton and Berzelius. As to such dining clubs, this was a popular social activity in London in the 18th and 19th centuries, with some estimates as to total number of these groups in the thousands. This club met in Soho on Old Compton Street and started with about 60 members. Furthermore, there was a short-lived London Chemical Society from 1824, which some claim that it collapsed because its lecturers did not give information at an understandable level. In any case, scientific and chemical societies were now a thing, 
But the question was, what could make them last? We see the first long-lived one by the 1840s. In February 1841, the Chemical Society of London came into existence with 77 chemists as the first members. The first president was Thomas Graham, whom we spoke of regarding the early history of macromolecules. Among its aims was quote, the communication and discussion of discoveries and observations. An account of which shall be published by the society.、Unquote. The success of the Chemical Society of London was the model for when August Hoffmann came back to Berlin in 1865, after living in London for years. This led to a German chemical society in 1867, the Deutsche Chemische Gesellschaft, and a snowball effect followed. The Russian Chemical Society began in 1869, and more throughout Europe in the following decades. Which brings us to America. One of Wöhler's students, a professor at the Columbia School of Mines by the name of H. Carrington Bolton, decided that Priestley's 1774 discovery of oxygen should be commemorated on its 100th anniversary, right in Priestley's final home. In the rural town of Northumberland in Pennsylvania, he was able to get seventy-five chemists from fifteen American states to attend. You can visit the Joseph Priestley House to this day, where you can see some items unearthed from the grounds and a reproduction of his laboratory and equipment. At the convention, Charles Chandler from New York suggested to form an American society to reproduce the British one. Some chemists pushed back because America was too empty and geographically diverse for it to work, and there already was a chemical section of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So that idea was dropped from the meeting. Chandler, however, moved ahead with his own plans and founded a New York Chemical Society two years later in 1876. He found that nearby states were a significant source of members, and declared on April sixth of that year that he founded a national organization called the American Chemical Society. The first president was John Draper, the photochemist whom I mentioned quite a while back. The meetings were mostly New Yorkers, which annoyed members from Washington D.C. several hundred miles to the southwest. So they formed their own Washington Chemical Society in 1884. Other local and state chemical societies began coalescing through the 1880s. Finally, the annoyance and partisanship was diffused when the American Chemical Society adjusted its bylaws to encourage local sections as subdivisions. The ACS moved from New York to Washington D.C. in 1905. Today. The American Chemical Society has over 150,000 members in 140 countries around the world, and is probably the largest scientific society globally. There are 186 different local sections now. The ACS even has a congressional charter dating from its reorganization in 1937. We'll be right back. 
Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Among other national chemical societies are Association of Greek Chemists, founded in 1924, Brazilian Chemical Society, founded in 1977, Chemical Institute of Canada from 1921, Chinese Chemical Society of Nanjing, founded 1932 and moved to Taipei in 1950, Chemical Society of Japan from 1878, Chemical Society of Mexico begun in 1956, Chemical Society of Nigeria, founded 1971, Chemical Society of Pakistan from 1978, Chinese Chemical Society in Beijing from 1932, Danish Chemical Society begun in 1879, Hungarian Chemical Society founded in 1907, Indian Chemical Society from 1924, Institute of Chemistry Ceylon started in 1941 as the Chemical Society of Ceylon, Institute of Chemistry of Ireland from 1923, Iranian Chemical Society, originally the Society of Iranian Chemists, dating from before 1979, but I cannot find an exact year. Israel Chemical Society from 1933. Italian Chemical Society started in 1909. Korean Chemical Society begun in 1946. New Zealand Institute of Chemistry founded in 1931. Norwegian Chemical Society started 1893, Pan-Africa Chemistry Network founded 2007, Pan-Cyprian Union of Chemists begun in 1960, Chemical Society of Peru dating from 1933, Polish Chemical Society started in 1919, Royal Australian Chemical Institute founded 1917, Royal Netherlands Chemical Society begun in 1903. Société Chimique de France, founded as the Société Française de Chimie from 1857. Spanish Royal Society of Chemistry started in 1980. And Swedish Chemical Society, which dates from 1883. These are just some of the national societies for promoting chemistry and chemists around the world. I hope I didn't miss your national society, but there are likely too many for me to mention. What is fascinating is that among non-Western countries, the first appears to be from Japan, which is what you'd expect after hearing about the Choshu Five's time in London in the mid-19th century. There are international organizations too, such as the Pan-Africa Chemistry Network. The main British chemical organization is the Royal Society of Chemistry. It began in 1980, but came about as the merger of four different earlier British chemical organizations. The Chemical Society, which I mentioned, dating from 1841. 
The Society for Analytical Chemistry, the group for assisting chemists who analyze chemicals. The Royal Institute of Chemistry, which was the official chemistry qualifying agency. And the Faraday Society, a society for physical chemistry. In 1980, with the merger, the RSC gained a new royal charter. I am a member of both the American Chemical Society and the Royal Society of Chemistry. What happens within a chemical society? Well, there are regular meetings, conferences, or symposiums for researchers to present their latest research. At these meetings, you might give a presentation in a hall in front of your peers, or you might present a poster. A poster session is when some researchers display poster summaries of their research on walls, and chemists mingle with them wandering around. Looking at the posters and asking questions about the research, a chemical society can also publish regular journals with official records of their members' research. But about chemical journals, I hope to talk later. I have attended national, regional, and even local American chemical society meetings and presented papers and talks. I have not attended a national Royal Society of Chemistry meeting on account of it being held in London. And I am not a British resident, so getting there is more of a hassle. I have attended annual meetings of the U.S. section of the Royal Society of Chemistry, however, which are generally held in the Northeastern USA. Many larger chemical societies, like the RSC and ACS, not only have regional divisions but scientific subdivisions. Most of the time, physical chemists are not interested in, say, organic chemistry papers, and vice versa. For example, so there are usually divisions such as physical chemistry, organic chemistry, history of chemistry, chemical education—that is, the best way to teach students via theory or lab work, analytical chemistry, polymer chemistry, biochemistry, and so on. Each chemist has a variety of choices to join the subgroups, depending on where he or she lives, works, and what kind of chemical work is done. There are also separate specialty chemical or chemically allied organizations, such as spectroscopy organizations, electrochemical organizations, protein organizations, microscopy societies, and more. Each of which supports a particular area of research or even a type of instrumentation. I also happen to be a member of the AVS, formerly known as the American Vacuum Society, which is a physics-based group. This has nothing to do with hoovering up dust from your floor. Rather, using vacuum-based instrumental techniques removes the often contaminating role that air can have on experimental research. If you remove the air, those air molecules cannot fall onto your equipment and reactants, and possibly affect your results. My doctoral dissertation involved equipment that brought the air pressure inside special chambers down to about ten to the minus thirteenth atmospheres. At that ultra low pressure, it takes about an hour for one single layer of gas atoms to coat your sample or equipment. Whereas at everyday air pressure in a room, gas molecules coat everything practically instantaneously. 
It's a specialized technique that has its own research, equipment, and interests. I hope to talk about this in a future episode. Chemical societies also have an increasing role to play in two other ways in advancing members' interests and in advancing public policy. As to members' interests, chemists can be affected by economics. Companies often find themselves in cycles of hiring and firing, so assisting chemists in finding jobs is important. Government grants to do research and the availability of money to do research can be affected by whomever is in political power. So making sure chemical research is supported for the good of the country and science is important. As for public policy, we have seen dramatically in the past couple of decades and more how problems like global warming are often dismissed as fake news by ignoramuses or the willfully deceptive, and when chemophobia runs rampant throughout the culinary and medical world. Chemical societies have a role in being the public experts in chemistry and how chemistry affects everyday life. When legislators need to consult about how proposed laws may affect chemical industries or the environment, the chemical societies ought to be the source of chemical expertise. I hope to talk about pseudoscience in future episodes. I want to distinguish chemical societies from lobbying or pressure groups as they are called in Britain. One example I can think of is the American Chemistry Council, which is a lobbying or trade group for the chemical industry. The ACC has business interests at heart, not necessarily overall scientific or human interests. This doesn't mean that the ACC is bad, but it isn't a chemical society for scientists to exchange research information. Some countries view chemistry as similar to engineering or medicine as a qualifying profession that needs certification to practice in that field. The American Chemical Society is less of a qualifying organization than a scientific one. The Royal Society of Chemistry has its own certifying tests in order for someone to be given the title of Certified Chemist because the Royal Institute of Chemistry, which gave qualifying tests for professional chemists, was folded into the RSC in 1980. In our next episode, we talk about the existence of positive carbon ions, carbocations, and how superacids came to be used to demonstrate the existence of carbocations. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. 